Thank you. Welcome, uh, everybody. I am Camille Landais from the Economics Department. This is uh, a great pleasure for me to welcome you tonight to this lecture on behalf of the uh, London School of Economics and the Department of Economics. Uh, the lecture tonight is uh, delivered by uh, Professor Lord Skidelsky, and it is a great pleasure for us to uh, have him. Uh, he doesn't really need an introduction, and he actually didn't want an introduction, but I feel like I have to. Um, so he's a, a emeritus professor of political economy at the University of Warwick. Uh, but I think to us, most importantly, is some kind of a reincarnation on earth of the spirit of John Maynard Kent's, uh, of this kind of fighting, unconventional, uncompromising, enlightened spirit. Uh, and uh, therefore, it is uh, a great pleasure for us to, to have him tonight present his uh, last book. Uh, for sure, uh, Lord Kent's had many lives, but you do have many lives as well. You're an, an, an historian, you're an economist, uh, you're a journalist, you contribute a lot to uh, uh, op-eds and, 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 and to political debates. Uh, your book is very much about contributing to the debate. It's uh, called Money and Government, a Challenge to Mainstream uh, Economics. It is a great journey into both uh, economic history and the history of economic thought. Uh, and what I really like is that it really points out the importance of the political economy uh, in which economic ideas are born. Uh, so I'm very, very excited. I can't wait to, uh, to hear about, uh, about the book. I need to do a few things before we can uh, leave the floor to uh, Professor Skidelsky. First, I need to uh, let you know that uh, the event tonight is live stream on Facebook and YouTube, and that it's also being recorded so that a podcast should be uh, available. And for you who are on social media, there is a hashtag, uh, LSE Economics, that I would like you to use in case you want to share about the event uh, tonight, okay? Uh, there's going to be also a book signing after the event, uh, and for those of you who don't yet have uh, Put the book. I encourage you to go outside. There are some books still available. Uh, but now, please uh, join me in welcoming Professor Skidelsky. It's, um, as always, a great pleasure to be here and in this room. Um, over the weekend, uh, just 10 years ago, the investment firm Lehman Brothers collapsed, and the world economy collapsed with it. Uh, I, feel it, I feel a little reluctant to add to the torrent um, of uh, the reading of the runes of that uh, catastrophe for the better management of the future. But, but um, by chance or cunning, a book of mine, as your chairman has just um, mentioned, called Money and Government, A Challenge to Mainstream Economics, um, uh, has just been published by Cunning, perhaps it was because I was so late, it just happened to be published um, uh, 10 years exactly um, after the collapse. Um, this tries to set the collapse of 2008 in a historical context. It's been inspired by John Maynard Keynes, who believed that the collapse of, of the 1930s needed a new economic theory and a new or really very old uh, theory of statecraft. Money was at the heart of his economic theory and public management of the economy at the heart of his theory of government. He accused his profession of abstracting from both in their attempts to model ideal types of economy. There's another uh, link I want to make. In the 1930s, extremism flourished. And Keynes was clear about the political importance of his message. I quote, the authoritarian state systems of today, 1936, seem to solve the problem of unemployment at the expense of efficiency and freedom. But it may be possible by a right analysis of the problem to cure the disease whilst preserving efficiency and freedom. 
Now, you can read all this in my book, very, very modestly priced, £25. Uh, but tonight, I concentrate on four topics. Why did it happen? Why was the recovery from it so botched? What precautions do we need to take to minimize the chances of it happening again? And what political dangers do we face if we fail to do so? We know what happened, but have scarcely got to the bottom of why it happened. The proximate cause of the collapse of 2008 was the accumulation of private debt. A vast global inverted pyramid of bank, business, and household debt was built on a narrow underlying base of assets, American real estate. When the base tottered, the pyramid fell. Notice it was private debt, not public debt, which was the problem. Persistent propaganda to the contrary, public profligacy played no causal role in the economic collapse. The interesting question is, why had politicians allowed, even encouraged, the development of a financial sector with such an appetite for making unsound loans? The shortest answer is that they hadn't got a clue about the risks the banks were running. A slightly longer answer is that they did have a clue, but were so ideologically hostile to state intervention with market forces that they were willing to run the risk. Remember, politicians are consumers of ideas. This is what they were being fed by their policy advisors. And I quote the following from the IMF in 2006. There is a growing recognition that the dispersion of credit risk by banks to broader and more diverse groups of investors, rather than warehousing such risk on their balance sheets, has helped make the banking and overall financial system more resilient. You couldn't, you could hardly get it more wrong. <laughs> Dig deeper and you find rational expectations and Eugene Farmer's efficient market hypothesis. Dig a bit deeper and you find belief that markets are optimally self-adjusting. Dig into the politics of it and you come across Reagan's famous government is the problem, not the solution. And Thatcher's, you can't buck the market. To explain how elements of bad theory ideology, vested interest, and political calculation combined to construct a financial system virtually free of prudential regulation remains a major challenge to thought. But I would suggest that economics was guilty in at least four respects. First, the standard macroeconomic models of the day abstracted from the existence of money and banks. For example, the Bank of England's main economic model between 2004 and 2010 omitted the banking system from its grouping of key economic agents. This abstraction, I explain in my book, was the result of economic models treating banks as mere intermediaries between utility-maximizing households and profit-maximizing firms. Keynes's crucial insight that, I quote, money plays a part of its own and affects motives and decisions was ignored. And this misguided view uh, of money left the bank unable to identify a burgeoning financial crisis. Second, standard economic theory taught that the main problem to be guarded against was inflation. Provided inflation was controlled by central banks, the economy would be naturally stable, relatively stable. Since inflation was in fact subdued at that, in that period, central banks lost interest in financial stability. In fact, inflation was kept low, not by central bank policy, but by the entry of billions of low-wage East Asian workers into the global market. Third, 
the standard economic models fail to distinguish between risk and uncertainty, a distinction which lay at the heart of Keynes's economics. All the risks run by, the, by banks in making loans were said to be calculable, and therefore all the loans they made were said to be accurately priced on average. Banks could safely be left free to roam the world making their bets where they wanted. Efficient, market, efficient finance theory ruled out the possibility of a widespread banking collapse. It's little wonder that Alan Greenspan, chairman of the Fed in the 2000s, admitted that the revelation that, in his own words, risk had been underpriced worldwide, underpriced worldwide, destroyed his intellectual system. He said that in testimony before Senate um, committee. Fourth, mathematical modeling of the herd behavior and momentum trading rife in financial markets is very difficult, so standard financial models simply omitted it. Behavioral economics is an attempt to plug this theoretical hole. Gosh, the old-fangled economist says, rubbing his eyes, do you mean to say that people can behave irrationally? What a thought. So, you see, they were living in this sort of all, this universe, which really had very little connection with anything going on in, 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 in the financial markets. Now, let me turn to a structural explanation of the collapse. This says that the creation of excessive debt is a necessary part of the contemporary capitalist structure. The kernel of the argument is that the more unequal the distribution of wealth and income, the more difficult it will be to maintain continuous full employment. This is because the rich save a higher fraction of their incomes than the poor. Growing inequality thus creates a contradiction. The more unequal the society is, the greater the investment needed to keep the economic machine going. Yet, the smaller are the earnings available to buy the increased output from the investment. <coughs> Hence, barring steps to reduce inequality, consumption will become increasingly dependent on debt and the savings of the rich will be increasingly employed in speculation rather than in expanding the output of consumer goods. Mariner Eccles, Roosevelt's chairman of the Fed, put the matter succinctly in 1938. I quote, by taking purchasing power out of the hands of mass consumers, the savers deny to themselves the kind of effective demand for their products that would justify a reinvestment of their capital accumulations in new plants. In consequence, as in a poker game, when the chips were concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, the other fellows could stay in the game only by borrowing. When their credit ran out, the game stopped. Now, something like this happened in the run-up to 2008. Advanced country data show a sharp rise in the share of post-tax income going to the top 1%, real hourly earnings lagging well behind the growth in labor productivity, a fall in the share of median or typical family income as a percentage of average family income, and a fall in the share of wage income in GDP. Now, why did this happen? Standard economic theory offers very, you know, almost no glimpse at the power relations behind the growth of inequality. It assumes that in competitive markets, all the factors of production are paid what they're worth. Indeed, the thrust of economic policy since the 1980s has been to remove the market distortions, such as high marginal tax rates, which sort of inhibit, which inhibit growth and saving. That's to say, the thrust of policy has deliberately promoted, promoted inequality in the belief that by redistributing income from the poor to the rich, you'd improve the incentives to work. Um, thus, 
this, this supply-side strategy had no empirical support and its theoretical basis, as exemplified most notoriously in the Laffer curve, was flimsy in the extreme. The main effect of the Reagan-Thatcher reforms was not to speed up the rate of growth, but to speed up the rate of growth of private debt. In the UK, household debt, consumer debt plus mortgages, rose from 70% of GDP in 1980 to 148% in 2008. And in advanced countries as a whole, financialization, a measure of the ratio of financial transactions to total economic transactions rose from 70% of GDP in 1980 to over 450% in 2011. With massive inflows of Chinese money keeping interest rates low, access to cheap credit became the new form of the social contract. As the economist Thomas Pally pointed out in 2008 before the collapse, the American economy relies on asset price inflation and rising indebtedness to fuel growth. The need, he asserted, was to restore the link between wages and productivity. The way, that way, wage income, not debt and asset price inflation, can again provide the engine of growth. And I think that's just as relevant now. That was 10 years ago. Thus, the excess credit creation, which Hayekians, uh, probably there are one or two in the audience, there always are, excess credit creation, which Hayekians see as the cause of the financial collapse, can on further reflection be seen to be rooted in the stagnation or decline in earnings. Consumption smoothing consuming expected future wealth today produced its nemesis in 2008. I now turn to my second topic. Why was recovery from the crash botched? The consensus view now is that whereas massive government stimulus measures cut off the downward slide in 2008 and 2009, subsequent fiscal austerity delayed recovery by two or three years in the United Kingdom and longer in the EU, leaving in its wake reduced productive capacity. Even the Economist journal, certainly no beacon of radical thought, now admits uh, on the 7th of September of this year, just a week ago, that fiscal and monetary policy could have done more sooner to bring about recovery. They were held back mostly by misplaced concerns about government debt and inflation. This is The Economist today. Now, what was The Economist saying in 2009? Voters know that big spending cuts are inevitable. Sitting on the fastest rising public debt relative to GDP of any large developed country, Britain is especially vulnerable to a loss of confidence by bond investors. They need to believe that Britain's probable new government, this was when Labour was still in power, is taking deficit reduction seriously. Now, the context of these words is important because it is that in rescuing banks from disaster in 2008-2009, governments transformed a great deal of private debt into public debt. Conservative rhetoric was then able to reverse the causation. The crisis was caused by the build-up of public debt. In explaining the turn to austerity in 2010, we have the same problem of determining the respective parts played by bad theory, ideology, vested interest, and political calculation. But bad theory can't escape some of the blame. One of the most telling arguments made for austerity involved the analogy between a household, between household and government debt. It's still regularly trotted out, and the fallacy is hard to dispel because it sounds intuitively correct. It's like a beginner's understanding of chess, 
where you can work out the first consequence of your move, but not the second and the third. Everyone knows, the argument runs, that if a household's income falls, it has to reduce its consumption. It can borrow temporarily, but the borrowing must be paid back by saving more. And the same must be true of governments. Um, because, after all, government is only a large household, isn't it? So when a government's revenue falls as a result of a slump, it should reduce its own consumption. Any temporary borrowing should be repaid as quickly as possible. To explain pers per per persuasively that government finances are different from household finances creates a narrative difficulty. In the past, I've tried saying that a government in debt is not compelled to reduce its spending because unlike a household, it has its own bank which can print as much money as it tells it to. But I know from experience that what economists call monetizing the deficit will sound dodgy to anyone but a new monetary theorist. So I think you have to say what Keynes, in fact, did say, that if a single household reduces its spending, this will have no effect on anyone but itself. But if a government reduces its spending, this will affect the consumption of everyone else. The reason is simply that the government spends so much more money than any household or firm. Western governments spend about 40% of the national income. Let's say they reduce their spending by 10%. That means total spending on goods and services falls by 4%. So my income falls and your income falls and everyone else's. Well, we're now three or four moves ahead in our, in, in, in our chess game, but the logic should not be too difficult to grasp. Keynes called the inability to distinguish the spending of a household from the spending of many households or spending of the government, the fallacy of composition. But the fallacy was rampant um, in, in the financial press 10 years ago, and it still crops up regularly in the utterances of politicians. The logic of thinking the matter through is that when an economy slumps, the government should increase, not reduce, its deficit in order to offset the increased saving of the private sector. In other words, it should build new hospitals, schools, houses, not stop building them. That is the only healthy way to get the deficit down. But this contention also raises narrative problems. I once used this argument in a speech in the House of Lords. Nigel Lawson, Thatcher's Chancellor of the Exchequer, sprang to his feet, you're allowed to interrupt. Um, what you are saying, he said, is that the government should increase its deficit in order to reduce it. That's nonsense. And he sat down with a satisfied grin like a cat who had just got the cream. Um, Mr. Osborne's treasury wasn't stupid. They understood the Keynesian argument perfectly well. But they had an extra move to escape the trap that the critics of austerity were setting them. Yes, they agreed, cutting public spending would certainly depress total spending, but it would reassure all those who were lending the government money, the bond markets, that the government would not default on its debt. Without this reassurance, they would charge the government higher and higher interest um, uh, for lending to it. Not only would the government have to spend increasing sums on interest payments, but the interest, pay, the interest rate structure of the whole economy would go up. So, so the stimulative effect of any increase in public spending would be lost. There'd be a financial crowding out um, if, if, if the government uh, sort of just went on increasing its deficit. And the economist they were listening to in 2010 was um, someone called Alberto Alessina, um, who was assuring European finance ministers, and I quote, that many even sharp reductions of budget deficits have been followed by sustained growth, even in the short run. That's what he was saying all around Europe. 
and George Osborne, of course, soaked that in. Business confidence would improve even more, Alicina said, if the deficit was cut by reducing payments to the poor. Here I think we can see the baleful effects, and this is a sort of a slightly deeper point, of postmodernist economics. Um, Keynes had started this by introducing expectations into economics. However, for Keynes, expectations were inherently uncertain. We don't know what will happen. But rational expectations theory turned expectations into a trap for Keynesian policy. If properly informed, forward-looking, rational lenders, like the bond markets, believe that by cutting their spending, government promises to repay would become more credible, then governments had no choice but to follow their wishes if they were to get their money. In return, lenders would rationally respond by lowering interest rates. Now, it's very, very hard to avoid the conclusion that this method of evading the Keynesian logic was determined less by science than by ideology. Businessmen don't like the welfare state, full stop. Am I moving away from where I should be? Sorry. I can do it that way. Bus businessmen don't like the welfare state. So if you want to get them to invest in the economy, governments have to cut spending on those who need it most. Conservative politicians like George Osborne, use the so-called scientific argument for deficit reduction as a cover for shrinking state spending on the poor. Now, ideology also played a prominent role in quantitative easing, um, QE for short. This was the preferred alternative to increasing government spending by those who realized that some sort of stimulus was needed. The theory was that by buying up government debt from its holders, the Bank of England would pump money into the economy. The extra money would then be spent. Money could be issued in any amount needed to offset, and even more than offset, the cuts in government spending. Now, why did governments prefer quantitative easing to increasing uh, 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 public spending. This again was a mixture of ideology and science. On the one hand, it preserved the fiction of central bank neutrality. In August 2009, the Chicago economist Robert Lucas called it quantitative easing, the most helpful counter-recession action taken to the date. Why? Because, I quote, it entails no new government enterprises, no government role in the allocation of capital. These seem to me to be important virtues. The fact that the bulk of the new money went to the sellers of existing assets, that is to say, to the already rich, was, if anything, an advantage. Feeling even wealthier than before, they would spend the extra money so it would trickle down to the poor. In short, its effect would be similar to cutting their taxes. But there was a theoretical hole in the argument which Keynes had pointed out in 1936, the belief that money, is only, uh, that money received will always be spent. And here is what Keynes said. If we are tempted to assert that money is the drink which stimulates the system to activity, we must remind ourselves that there may be several slips between the cup and the lip. And this is certainly what happened um, with quantitative easing. In their account of the transmission mechanism between money and prices, central bankers and most monetary economists ignored the existence of liquidity preference. That is, preferring to hold assets in liquid form rather than spend them buying goods and services. Much of the new money went into cash reserves or the purchase of liquid assets at home and abroad, not into the productive economy. So let me sum up the response to the slump. Osborne's expansionary fiscal consolidation 
delayed recovery by at least two years. Its cumulative effect over seven years was to leave households between £4,000 and £13,000 worse off than they would otherwise have been. Quantitative easing offset fiscal contraction to a limited extent, but produced a lopsided recovery, increased inequality of wealth, and precisely because of its relative ineffectiveness has left a lot of speculative cash sloshing around the global financial system, setting the scene for the next financial crisis. Well, let's turn a bit to now to the present. Ten years on is a good time to ask what governments and policymakers have learned. The answer is not nearly enough. One pretty obvious conclusion from all this is that prevention is far better than cure. Once a downturn gathers speed, the scale of intervention needed to reverse it becomes very large. Budget deficits balloon, public debts soar, governments take over banks, all conjuring up visions of looming state bankruptcy or worse, state control over the economy. So the most important question then is how can these catastrophes be stopped from happening? By prevention, I don't mean trying to stop the semi-regular fluctuations of 1 or 2% of nominal income, say, over a 10-year ten ten business cycle. Capitalist economies, for reasons that are still fairly mysterious, have these rhythmic movements, perhaps connected with Schumpeter's cycles of creation and destruction. But the authorities already possess the tools to dampen these fluctuations if they want to. Now, what I'm talking about is preventing economic collapses in the order of 5 or 10 percent of, 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 of nominal income and an unemployment rate double or treble from what's regarded as normal. These can happen any time, these collapses, because as Keynes taught, the future is uncertain and any number of unanticipated small shocks can have very large effects. So they could happen any time. It's no use, you know, I've been asked, oh, when, when is the next financial crisis going to happen? I said, I don't know. But you can just analyze a situation, say, look, it's quite likely because the economy is actually quite unsound. Um, the crisis we have seen started with the banks. It was the rapid spread of contagion through the banking system which brought us low in 2008. This was because big global banks held each other's risky assets, heavily insured risky assets, incidentally. When the value of these assets collapsed, the banks and their insurers went bust. Then, government, then they had to be rescued because they were too big to fail. Has banking been made more resilient? Well, to some extent. Capital and reserve requirements have been beefed up. Uh, big banks are now subjected to stress tests. They're required to produce living wills. There are lots of other things that have happened as well. But the big reform has not been made, which is to cut the global links between the big banks. This is the only way to stop contagion spreading like wildfire across the financial system. And it implies something that is hardly considered, and that is restricting the international movement of money. This is a huge and complex matter on which I have no special expertise to offer. But the starting point has to be a challenge to the banker's claim that international banks, by efficiently matching savers and borrowers across the globe, reduce funding costs and so maximize investment and growth. This ignores the speculative character of much of the so-called investment what used to be called hot money flows. The case has to be made that banks are not allocating capital efficiently if their bets lead to collapses like the one in 2007 and 2008. More fundamentally, the task of making banks more resilient to shocks depends on making economies more resilient to shocks. 
A healthy economy is the key to safer banking. An economic system which can only be kept going by the growth of private debt can't enjoy a financially stable banking system. That is what's missing in most of the commentary um, on, the, on the 10th anniversary. All of them talk about the banks and how you must make banking resilient, more resilient, and they never, never really talk about how to make the economy more resilient. It's, it's all the wrong way around. Um, to keep a, 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 an economy healthy requires reinserting the state into the management of demand by strategic changes to the distribution of income and to the source of investment funds. Governments must take much bolder steps than any yet contemplated to reverse the concentration of wealth and income. Um, and they mustn't be put off by spurious arguments about reducing the incentives if they did that to save and to work. They must also, through public investment banks and their own capital budgets, guarantee the economy a sufficient stream of investment to offset the speculative character of much private investment, ignoring the argument that such, such government spending, this is such government investment, that governments are bound to, bound to pick losers. Of course they will, but the, so does the private sector time and again, and it's not clear why the one should do any worse or better than the other. A central implication of the, of the above, what I've just said, is that monetary policy should not be outsourced to central banks. Their current mandates give them only one task, which is to stop inflation, and it's doubtful if they can even do that. Certainly, they can't stop deflation. The central bank mandate should be to support the economic policy of the government and to attend to the stability of its member banks. I would abolish a separate inflation target. This limitation of the macro scope of central banks follows directly from the principle that good money depends on having a good economy, not the other way around. There are other things that should be done but can't be done by national governments alone. But the British government should at least press for the reform of the international payment system to bring pressure on trading partners to balance their current accounts, as Keynes proposed in 1941. Otherwise, we'll just get a succession of tariff wars and currency wars. Now, I come to the last bit of my... Um, talk. The events of the last 10 years have left a damaging legacy of political resentment. Between 2007-8 and 2015-16, support for extremist parties in Europe doubled. And that doesn't include the election of Donald Trump in the United States, our own vote for Brexit, and more recent gains by the National Front in France, the AFD in Germany, the Northern League in Italy, the Freedom Party in Austria, and the Sweden Democrats. Growing support for populist movements has deeper roots than mere economic distress. I'd, I'd be the first to admit that. But the correlation between the collapse of 2008 and the growth of such movements is too striking to be ignored. The truth is, that bad economics breeds bad politics. By bad politics, I mean xenophobic nationalism, hostility to immigrants, disregard of human rights, suppression of domestic freedoms. By good politics, I mean an international outlook, freedom of expression, respect for human rights, and properly accountable government. By bad economics, I mean allowing financial markets to dictate what happens to the economy. By good economics, I mean recognizing the duty of governments to protect their people against misfortune, insecurity, and calamity. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're heading for a rerun of the 1930s. All I'm claiming is that bad economics makes it more likely that bad politics will move from the fringes into the mainstream as happened with Hitler's National Socialists, 
between 1928 and 1930. And it's happening all over the Western world today. And, 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 the, and, the, and the difficulty here in, 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 in even talking about this is that sometimes bad politics produces good economics. Um, and, and I take Hungary as an example. It's a very, it's a good case study in a Keynesian recovery po policy in economics, but the politics are terrible. Now, what the rise of extremism does suggest to me is that we must find ways of uncoupling political liberalism from neoliberal economics. I mean, they've just got to be separated out. They can't be regarded as a unity that stand and fall together. This involves reinstating the kind of political economy which ruled um, from the 1940s to the 1970s until it was swept away by Reagan and Thatcher. Hayek was precisely wrong when he said that Keynesian social democracy was the slippery slope to serfdom. It was the antidote to serfdom. The dilemma is clear. If, for ideological reasons, you believe that wealth creation should be entirely left to the private sector, with governments providing only minimal public goods, then you have to ensure what Keynes called a political and social atmosphere which is congenial to the business community. But in doing so, you risk a dreadful, risk a dreadful political backlash from those who suffer most from these types of business collapses. The sensible middle way is to accept a mixed economy in which the democratic state is given a positive role in creating and maintaining wealth and well-being. By good economics today, I mean an economics which, while allowing a wide field for decentralized um, uh, decision-making, ensures against catastrophe takes heed for the future and responds to the popular demand for fairness. This was the message of Keynes, and it's my message tonight. Thanks a lot. We're going to now take questions. Uh, so there are... Stewards and stewardess who have mics. So let's start. I think for a smooth run, we're going to take maybe couples by batch, maybe a couple, three questions at a time. So let's start uh, down there. Oh my goodness. Sorry, that microphone just appeared over my shoulder. <laughs> um, okay, is this working? All right, sounds like it is. Okay, so one of the, you mentioned today the rise of populism uh, is similar to the rise of populism during the 1930s was the rise of the Third Reich. Um, you could also, oh, right hi, sorry, I'm right over here. Hi, sorry. Um, no problem. Uh, here, do I, okay, I'll stand up. Um, so you could say that part of this is due not only to a mismanagement of banks, but because of an undereducation of the general populace of economics. All of us here tonight are here because we care about this, because this is what we do. But there are a lot of people who this isn't their regular lives. So do you have any ideas how we can begin to start combating the rise of populism because of economics at its root rather than simply at the governmental and um, top levels? Sorry, well, that's just, yeah. it's no, a no, common... Sorry, I, I, you're going to take another one. Okay. Uh, yeah, if you don't mind. And if you can, please uh, raise when you, uh, uh, when you take the, the question. So, yeah, maybe with the uh, green shirt over there. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I really like your books. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, you, you lay, lay a lot of blame for the financial crisis uh, at private credit. And I feel like we're now seeing um, maybe different risks, uh, which have also been evident in the global economy. And I want to put two scenarios, one being Italy, which has um, seen a lot of uh, the public debt cause problems to banks. And I know what you were telling, uh, saying earlier about how um, a lot of that national debt comes from turning private debt into national debt, but it's still causing a lot of problems today. And the second being uh, the US. And, and if you see any risks there with 
you know, this late in the cycle and this new spending bill, which could arguably not be very productive. Um, so, yeah, it would be nice to hear a comment on that. Uh, I, well, you know, on the education question, of course I agree. Better, better, better education is always a good thing. But let's not regard it as a panacea for any of this. Because some people will always be relatively less well-educated than others. I mean, that is absolutely inevitable. I mean, everything goes up, but there's still people, you know, at the LSE will probably be better educated than other people who will also be better educated, but not as... as so to, to try and eliminate extremism through education doesn't seem to me to be, um, you know, that, that won't do it. Uh, and that doesn't mean I'm not in favor of better education. Of course I am. So, I mean, that's the only thing I'd say about that. You've got to attend to the other things as well. I mean, the point is government has to look after the less educated as well as the better educated. And um, that's, that's been always been the duty of government. And that's why we have governments, actually. Yeah, and on the, on the, on the uh, Italian and... I think, you know, the details of the different countries vary. Um, Italy had a high public debt even before the crisis, but it wasn't regarded as a problem by the markets. It, it, it became a problem when the economy collapsed. And... and and, uh, and, and then, and, and, you know, and in, and in the Eurozone as well, I mean, a lot of the, uh, both private and public debt was, um, was uh, uh, contracted to foreign banks. And they, they didn't have a central bank of their own that could print money. And so they, they did get into terrible debt, debt crises all over, all over the, the Mediterranean countries of the Eurozone did. But the fundamental thing is none of this would have happened. It wouldn't have been you know, such a big problem had um, growth stopped and gone into decline, um, had, had the private banking system not collapsed. So, I mean... The public, the public authorities inherited the failures of the private sector, and, and, they, and, and then they were blamed. Now, you say, well, it was, you say it was a problem. Yes, it was a problem. Of course, public debts are problems. But, but, I mean, what you've got to do is to sort of have an economy which doesn't produce such huge problems for, 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 public, for public finances. As for the United States, well... Yes, I mean, there's been, it's a big stimulus, isn't it, that uh, Donald Trump has, has produced. Well, let's see what, I think it's the wrong kind of stimulus. Um, I think it's really a throwback to Reaganomics. If you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you give the rich more money, they'll work harder, they'll save harder, they'll be trickled down, and that kind of thing. What, what, what um, uh, and, and I also think, I'm not, I'm not, um, actually against um, uh, Donald Trump's protectionist sort of um, rhetoric if, it's, if he sees it, if he uses it as a bargaining counter to get better, a better, better trading system um, which, which, um, which um, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't give rise to the troubles the present one does. I mean, this has always been one of the purposes of... of um, uh, speaking loud about tariffs, that you're not actually planning to um, uh, create a high-tariff country. What you're, 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 what you're planning to do is to get the other person to um, negotiate a, a different trade deal. Now, it can go terribly wrong. It's very risky using that strategy, and of course it alarms the markets enormously. But I'm not actually au fond uh, against it. If I may, though, uh, because that, that's actually something quite important that you didn't mention too much, but that takes a, a lot of room in the book, this idea of all the global imbalances, and in particular the trade uh, imbalances. And I'm still a bit curious because I still don't believe that there is 
any sense in what Donald Trump is doing, that what is fundamentally fighting is for a, a better trade system that deals with these imbalances. I don't think he has any type of understanding of what these imbalances are and, and, and what they entail. Well, I agree. I mean, that's exactly where, where, where you know, people like you and me need to press on this. I mean, this, this again all came up in the 30s. I mean, one of the, one of the things I uh, was struck by in writing this book is how many of these debates just go on and on and on. And, and you know, the, the form of them it varies slightly, but the substance is more or less the same. Keynes said you can't have a free trade system unless you solve the payments, world payments problem. And um, so that was the whole idea of his clearing union, which would force countries to maintain trade balances with each other and not uh, uh, run huge surpluses or deficits. He said, well, if you can deal with that, then, of course, you can liberalize trade much more than otherwise. Now, Trump perhaps doesn't realize that. Um, or his administration doesn't. But that is the way you can get out of these trade, uh, the, 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 these, these trade wars. You, you know, it's the second best. Um, Keynes, you see, wrote an article in um, 1933 for which he was hugely criticized, in which he, it, was, it was called national self-sufficiency. And he said, if we can't get a proper system international system, then we have to actually cut some of our trade links with other people. Um, and that was second best. Now, the, the point is that the Trump administration doesn't seem to have any view of the first best. Um, thank you for the talk. It's very interesting. Um, I'm just curious, because in, uh, in one part of your talk, you said that it's foolish for people to expect the public sector to perform any better than the private sector. But then you also said that the governments have a responsibility and an obligation to protect the people over which they govern. So I'm curious as to what you see the role of the government in the modern day, especially with everything's going on and the lessons we're learning from the financial crisis. Um, so what do I see the role of the government? I, I didn't get that either. Can you repeat? Because it was not loud enough. Do, do you mind giving the mic again? Because we... You've got to speak up a bit. Sorry. Um, I'm curious to, see is to, um, to hear what you think the role of the government is in the modern day as an economic agent, given everything that's happened and given the fact that we shouldn't expect them to perform any better than the, pub the private sector, but also due to the fact they have an obligation to the people they govern over. Well, I think, I mean, as I said, I think once, once a crisis has happened, it's very, very hard. Um, the policy becomes very, very difficult. So prevention is better than cure. Now, the point about having um, a, 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 a sizable investment function, a state investment function, is to keep investment less volatile. Because the private sector, a lot of its, a lot of its um, spending um, is, 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 